Part Four, Chapter Three of Canada's Hundred Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Canada's Hundred Days by John Livesay. Part Four, Chapter Three. The Advance on Denain. On October seventeenth, the first Canadian division crossed the Canal du Nord. The first brigade on the left, effecting their passage in the morning, followed by the second brigade on their right. Troops of the fourth Canadian division, unable to make headway by a direct assault on the line of the Sensee, swung out to their left, crossing over the Canal du Nord, and then working east along the north bank of the Sensee, clearing out opposition as they went, chiefly from enemy machine gun posts. Later in the day, the second Canadian division, in the neighborhood of Oisnobac, with troops of the sixth brigade succeeded in gaining a footing on the north bank. On the following morning, October 18th, the 4th Brigade attacked. The 18th Battalion, Western Ontario, and the 19th Battalion of Toronto, crossing over on a footbridge between Payancourt and Estrun, and advancing as far as Wavrechain. Canadian engineers followed up closely, constructing pontoon and steel bridges over both the canal and river. The enemy had blown every crossing, and demolished causeways and railway bridges, their engineers showing remarkable efficiency in this work of destruction. Fog blotted out the landscape, favoring the retreat. After the crossing had been effected, our troops advanced several miles, with patrols thrown out in front, in a vain endeavor to get in touch with enemy rearguards. For days to come the mist hung low over the countryside, and our airmen were powerless. In these days magnificent work was done by Corps signals, who pushed their telegraph lines ahead abreast of the advance, thus keeping all units in touch, a remarkable feat, for in the textbooks it had never been contemplated that in open warfare of the nature now developing, wire communications could thus be maintained. But the work was carried forward right up to Mons, and after the armistice through Belgium to the Rhine. Once the north bank of the Sensee had been cleared, our advance went forward practically unchecked for several days. Canadian railway troops had been brought up to repair communications, but our progress quite outpaced their utmost efforts, and the troops pressed on, often with but meagre rations, yet stimulated by the prospect of liberating civilians in the next village ahead, and there again encouraged to fresh exertions. It was claimed for the 1st Brigade, Brigadier General W. A. Griesbach, that its troops were first to enter Douai. It had been evacuated of its civilian population, and might have been a city of the dead, for there was no sign of life other than a few sentries. A block of buildings on the Rue de Paris, fronting the Grande Place, had been burned, but otherwise there was no sign of intentional demolition, such as had characterized the enemy evacuation of Cambrai. The magnificent old Hôtel de Ville was intact, and now floating over it once again was the tricolor. But within was evidence of systematic sack, historic pictures having been taken from their frames, and even the great gilt candelabra removed from the ceilings, but left heaped on the floor in the hurry of the retreat. Only the wonderful frescoes on the walls of the banquet hall remained. Here again the town had been given over to sack by the soldiery, Shops had been looted, and every private house entered and its contents of value removed, with the same wanton destruction of what was left that had marked Cambrai. In the cathedral, a great pile of altar furnishings and vestments, on the floor, showed that had time been given, these two would have gone. 
The same sack had been carried out in all the evacuated villages, but as the retreat gained momentum, with our men close upon its heels, this evacuation of civilians could no longer be effected by the retreating enemy. For our troops in their concentric movement on Denain often entered villages at one end while the Bash were leaving at the other, and yet already the tricolor so carefully hid these long years had broken out from every window, and the glad villagers weeping for joy crowded around impeding our advance, though still was heard the rattle of machine-guns, and occasionally a shell would burst in the narrow street. From their slender store they pressed upon our soldiers coffee and bread, and garlanded the guns with flowers. Vive les Canadiens! Long live our liberators, and glory to the heroes, hung in great streamers across the village square. On October 21st, Canadian Corps headquarters moved to Loire, a village on the douai denain road. Just beyond was Aubercicourt, a typical industrial village, whose rows of bright brick cottages recalled the Lens area, with its glassworks and the fosses, conical heaps of slag, rising up from the flatness of the plain, indicating the pit mouths. The Bash had wrecked these mines, flooding their levels and blowing up their shafts, damage that it must take years to repair. We had come to the borders of the most valuable industrial district of France, and everywhere was ruin. A curious example of German psychology exists in the village of Loard on the brawls of a barn converted by the Bash into a concert hall. The artist, of no mean talent, used these flat spaces to exhibit a series of three pictures that might well bear the motto, As ye sow, so shall we reap. In the first of these, a long horizontal panel, a finely drawn bull is seen drawing a heavy wooden plough. In the furrow guiding it strains a young Frenchwoman, flat-breasted and dulled by field labor, but with still a meager beauty. The next depicts an old Frenchman, nodded and bowed, sowing the field. A little boy toddles beside him. Behind is a village church and a windmill. With savage fidelity the artist makes mute despair the keynote of both these groups, of the woman straining at the plough, and the old man wearily casting the seed. For here cannot be that joy of labor that even as it plants sees in the long months to follow first the tender sprouting blade, then the wind upon the grain, the harvest field, and the safe-garnered fruits of the earth in neatly ordered stacks awaiting the thresher. Despair dragging at their feet, they toil to make fat the destroyer. Relentlessly the third picture drives home this horrid truth. Swinging a scythe in the yellowing cornfields is the great central figure of a Prussian soldier, terrible, with the same unerring fidelity, a ferocious crouching figure of long arms, knotted hands, and widespread legs, repulsive as the gorilla. Power it has, and strength and cunning. The wheat sheaves bow before it. With a fine, compelling touch of irony, the artist fills in his background with marching German soldiers, force directing the harvest. He has taken away with him everything. Not a horse nor a cow, a pig nor a hen, is left in the country. In one village he has even taken the nanny-goat whose milk was keeping alive a sick child. He burned the straw he threshed. Where he could not remove grain he scattered it over the barnyard. As for the peasants' houses, they are stripped. The sack has been systematic. We captured at Loire a trainload of furniture taken from this village, still standing on the siding, all neatly packed and labelled, by order of the army command. 
little groups of peasants, old men, women, and children, push before them their hand-carts piled high with what household belongings they could take when evacuated. They come back to their villages to find but empty shells, the accumulations of patient generations of labor scattered to the four winds, or lying soiled and broken on floors deliberately befouled. But they return free citizens of a free nation. Over their threshold is the tricolor, and they are at home. Ah, such scenes! Following hard on the enemy, a field battery comes to a stream where the bridge has been broken down. Seizing picks and shovels, the ecstatic villagers break down barns and garden walls to make a crossing. This not going fast enough, they throw in mattresses, bedsteads, and whatever movables the Bosch have left. Bravo! Bravo! they cry as the first gun crosses and gallops up the road. The villagers east of Douai, whom the Bosch had no time to evacuate, are better off. Though their livestock is gone, they have preserved their furniture. Their houses are exquisitely neat and clean, the tiled floor spotless, and kitchen utensils shining. By contrast, they make the work of the Bosch elsewhere more beastly. Such a village is red, lying in a loop of the scarp, northeast of Montigny, where in the chateau our first brigade has its headquarters, and one of its bedroom doors bears the inscription in chalk, Feldmarschall Hindenburg, a very recent visitor, the villagers say. An enemy battalion had been quartered in Fred for years, but its people have a proper pride for not a village girl listened to the Bosch, and no bedraggled damsels followed the retreating army, more than can be said for every village. They were eager to see Canadian troops, and so, although this village is outside the northern boundary of the Canadian Corps, one Sunday afternoon Lieutenant Colonel A. W. Sparling of the 1st Battalion, billeted near, marches in with his band playing. It becomes a fete day. The villagers, scant though their means, insist on providing refreshments for the entire battalion, with many cups of coffee, or the bitter substitute that goes by that name. Children bring great bouquets of flowers, asters and chrysanthemums. From intimate talk with these villagers, one is able to gather a picture of just what the enemy occupation has meant. Other villagers fared worse where the soldiery was brutal and licentious. In Vred it was a continual struggle for existence. They were robbed of their rations issued by the American mission, and more lately by the Spanish, for after drawing them they were requisitioned by soldiers, who gave in return sauerkraut and black bread. "'To your good health, madame,' said a bash officer as he munched American biscuits. They had no fresh meat for years, but for their garden produce they would have starved. Cabbage soup was the mainstay.' Able-bodied men were drafted away to work in trenches, and the young women taken to the forests, receiving for their labor scanty pay in German paper currency, now worthless. These privations are stamped upon every face. Malnutrition caused many deaths. One quarter of the village population, according to the battalion M.O., are sick from this cause. Voluntarily our men have assigned twenty percent of their rations to the villagers but they need careful dieting and nursing. Many of the children, wizened mites, can never be robust. They must carry the mark of the Bosch to their grave. To see all this, to have brought thus intimately home the perils and suffering of both body and spirit of these long years, makes what our soldiers have accomplished all so immensely worthwhile. One of our men is carrying a little child. Others cling about him. 
We are fully repaid, he says, for all we have gone through. Our dead have not died in vain. Our gaping wounds are bathed in grateful tears. Let no mother nor wife nor sister in Canada feel, if they ever felt, that their boys gave their lives merely for an abstraction, even for so great and splendid an ideal as truth and honor and justice. They died that living people, good people, true people, might be freed from physical bonds and be restored to spiritual life. In every little home is a crucifix and the signs of humble devotion. A pious, earnest, sober, frugal people, these French peasants. Narrow, perhaps, in vision, but firm of soul. The knight-errantry of Canada might have sought the world over, and the ages through, for a people in distress more worthy of a righteous war of liberation. Through long generations the memory of these days, the coming of the Canadians, and the bursting asunder of fetters, will be cherished in steadfast French hearts. Meanwhile, we had been pushing on. On October 18th, the line had reached to west of Bouchain, west of Auberchicourt, with Marquette and Montigny inclusive. From October 18th to 19th, a considerable advance was made, which resulted in the capture by the 4th Canadian Division, on October 19th, of the important town of Denaine. On October 18th, the 11th Brigade captured Auberchicourt, Aniche, and Abscon, 102nd Battalion, and on October 19th, Escodin, 54th Battalion. On its right, the 2nd Canadian Division captured Bouchain, Mastang, Rules, and Lourche, while on our left, the 1st Canadian Division captured Brouet, Somain, Fenem, Air, Horneng, and Halez. This period is summed up by the Corps Commander thus. Test barrages were carried out on the Corps front each morning to ascertain the enemy's strength and attitude, and on October 17th the enemy was found extremely quiet and did not retaliate to our artillery fire on the front of the 1st Canadian Division. Patrols were therefore sent out on that front and succeeded in crossing the Canal du Nord in several places, meeting only slight opposition. Stronger patrols followed and made good progress. On the front of the 4th Canadian Division, however, all attempts to cross the canal were still met by machine-gun fire. After the 1st Canadian Division had secured crossings, a battalion of the 4th Canadian Division was sent up to take advantage of these crossings, and working down the east side of the canal, cleared the enemy on the 4th Canadian Division front, and enabled the advance to commence there. Further to the right, at Hem-Lenglet, the 2nd Canadian Division succeeded in crossing the canal later in the day, and patrols were pushed on in the direction of Oisneau-Bac. Only enemy rearguards were encountered during the day, and the opposition was nowhere heavy, although more organized and stubborn on the right opposite the 2nd Canadian Division. By 6 a.m. October 18th, practically all of the infantry of the 1st and 4th Canadian Divisions, and several battalions of the 2nd Canadian Division, were across the canal, and the following towns had been liberated. Ferrin, Corchelet, Gaulzin, La Raquette, Vieux-au-Tertre, Kenton, Rucor, Brunemont, Aubigny-au-Bac, Fechain, Frassain, Bunicor, and Hemlinlet. During that day, two armoured cars, one squadron of the Canadian Light Horse, and one company of Canadian Corps cyclists from the Brutinelles Brigade, were attached to each of the 1st and 4th Canadian Divisions to assist in the pursuit of the enemy. These troops remained under the leading divisions throughout subsequent operations, and rendered valuable service to the divisions to which they were attached, 
although the enemy's very complete road destruction prevented the armored cars from operating to their full extent. Throughout the advance now begun, a great amount of work was thrown upon the engineers, and their resources in men and material were taxed to the utmost. The enemy's demolition had been very well planned and thoroughly carried out, all bridges over the canals and streams being destroyed, every crossroad and road junction rendered impassable by the blowing of large mines, and the railways, light and standard, blown up at frequent intervals. The enemy also considerably impeded our progress by his clever manipulation of the water levels in the canals which he controlled. Footbridges were first thrown across the canal, and these were quickly followed by heavier types of bridges to carry battalion transport and artillery, and in addition eight heavy traffic bridges, ranging in length from ninety to a hundred and sixty feet, were at once put under way. On the front of the first Canadian division on the left, the enemy drained the canal, and it was found impossible to complete and use the pontoon bridges first commenced. The engineers in the forward area concentrated their efforts on road repair, craters being quickly filled in, for the most part with material gathered on the spot and found in enemy dumps. In addition, the whole areas were searched immediately after their occupation, many booby traps and delayed action mines being discovered and rendered harmless, and all water supply sources being tested. It was clear from the wholesale destruction of roads and railways that the reconstruction of communications would be very slow, and that it would be difficult to keep our troops supplied. Canadian railway troops were brought up, and as soon as the enemy had been cleared away from the canal, work was commenced on the repairing of the standard gauge railway forward from Sochi Lestray. The construction of a railway bridge over the canal at Obenchuel Obak was immediately commenced. The enemy retirement now extended considerably north of our front, and the Eighth Corps on our left began to move forward. During October 18th, rapid and fairly easy progress was made, and the following towns and villages were liberated from the enemy. Deschi, Saint-Lenoble, Guisnang, Montigny, Pecquencourt, Loffre, Le Rorde, Urchin, Masny, Ecaillon, Marquette, Oisnobac, and the western portions of Aubercicourt and Montchicourt. During the day the advance had carried us into a large industrial area, and well-built towns became more frequent. It also liberated the first of a host of civilians, two thousand being found in Pecquencourt and a few in Aubercicourt. These people had been left by the retiring army without food, and faced as we were by an ever-lengthening line of communication, and with only one bridge yet available for anything but horse transport, the work of the supply services was greatly increased. This additional burden was, however, cheerfully accepted, and the liberated civilians, whose number exceeded seventy thousand before Valenciennes was reached, as well as our rapidly advancing troops, were at no time without a regular supply of food. Allusion has been made to the fog, which for days impeded our advance, the sun not being seen for the ten-day period October 14th to 23rd, and for two days it rained continuously, making the roads a quagmire. The Bosch could not have selected a better time for making his getaway. Progress was very tedious, because besides destroying all bridges and railway tracks, he had blown enormous craters at every crossroad. Difficulties of observation have been referred to, but the absence of information from our air scouts was to some degree supplied by the efficient work of our intelligence officers, aided by the Corps cavalry, mounted infantry, and cyclists. 
It was impossible, of course, to say with the same definiteness what forces the enemy had on our front, as had been done so wonderfully in all the fighting up to the close of the Battle of Cambrai, and the connection is appropriate for recording something of that phase of corps operations. Throughout the heavy fighting from August 8th to October 12th, the Canadian Corps commander and his staff were kept accurately and constantly informed of the enemy's strength and dispositions, and to the uninitiated there was something almost of magic in the positive statements issued daily by the Intelligence Department of the Corps as to the enemy elements opposing us, what units had been washed out by our attacks, what reserves had been brought up, whence they came, and their battle history, all illustrated by maps showing battery positions, areas of troops and support, and so on. Unremitting and unflagging, the great military detective force carries on its work silently and without any sort of public recognition in the daily official reports of operations. But through its exertions our troops have the vital advantage that instead of fumbling in the dark, they can walk straight in the light of day. In the early years of the war the enemy's intelligence was superior to our own, but in its closing period the situation was reversed and particularly as he fell back and thus lost touch with his agencies and the attacking force, his blunders became very patent. On the other hand, we were admirably served, and in no quarter more so than by our own intelligence officers. There were, of course, subterranean channels, and much information was collated from a careful study of the air photographs, a work carried on with great thoroughness and gallantry by the RAF. But the most certain source of information lay through identification of prisoners, and this was reduced to such a pitch of scientific skill that half an hour after a show opened, our intelligence officers at Canadian Corps headquarters were able to enumerate the divisions opposed to us. Its agents were right up in the firing line, and identification of enemy units began there and then. More elaborate and intimate work was done in the various divisional cages, and finally at the central clearinghouse, the Corps' cage for prisoners of war. Here men speaking perfectly the German tongue, and apparently prisoners themselves, moved freely about, gathering information, and prisoners showing a disposition to talk were interrogated at length. This service, as indeed the whole conduct of operations, can only be carried on successfully with the close cooperation of Corps signals. Fighting a battle is as much a concentrated business as a Christmas mail-order service. Every department must function or the whole will fall to pieces. Before a shot is fired, the work of the general staff is completed. Many days and nights have been employed in preparation, and it is only when the battle starts that its members can lean back in their chairs and take a moment of ease. They have done their part. The execution of the plan is left to others. During the progress of the battle, a tremendous strain is thrown on signals, which must keep all units in close touch with their headquarters, the brigades with their divisions, these latter with corps headquarters. Nor is this all. They must maintain uninterrupted the all-important liaison between the infantry and artillery. A loss of communication at a critical moment of the advance must mean the useless sacrifice of many lives, for our counter-battery work is of vital value to the attacking troops. Not less important is the work of preparation. As intelligence is the eyes, so signals are the ears of the general staff. A good illustration is furnished by the record of operations established by the Canadian Corps Signal Service on Sunday, September 1st, when preparations were completing for the assault next morning on the famous Drocourt-Quint line. 
On that day, 7,811 messages were handled, to say nothing of the core telephone service, 2,440 being by dispatch riders, and the balance by land wires or wireless. This requires a large staff of telegraph operators, both on the land and wireless services, and these have been recruited from the pick of the profession in Canada, from the news agency staffs, commercial telegraph companies, and broker offices. They carry on under very difficult conditions, frequently exposed to shell-fire and night-bombing raids. Especially in the wireless, they reach a high standard of proficiency, and some of these latter became acquainted with the enemy wireless calls, a knowledge that occasionally proves of great value. Thus, when a Canadian wireless section was sent up to Flanders just before the opening of the Amiens show, this knowledge enabled them to completely mislead the enemy as to our intentions, and confirmed his intelligence in its belief that the Canadian Corps was to be thrown in on that front. This particular branch is known as the ITALK section, the interception branch of the wireless section, and it was said that our intelligence had the enemy code six months ahead. Hazardous indeed is the work of the cable linesmen who construct and repair wires under fire, suffering many casualties. A gallant story is told of two signalers of a Manitoba field battery, chums who had fought together since the Battle of Ypres Salient. It was just before the opening of the Drocourt Quench show, when it was vitally important that telephone connection between the battery and brigade headquarters should be maintained at all costs. They discovered that the line was down, and though the enemy was strafing with very deadly shell-fire, they methodically went to work to find and repair the break. This done, they discovered that other batteries on the line were cut off, and they proceeded to repair the whole line, just getting their okay as zero-hour struck. One of them was wounded subsequently, well employed on similar work. In the opening phase of an attack, when we were pushing ahead rapidly, it was of course essential that signals keep up with the advance. Thus, by the night of September 27th, they had pushed forward an air line 8,500 yards, or one and a half miles east of the Canal du Nord. Such examples are typical of the spirit actuating the entire signal service, not least efficient members of whom are the despatch riders, who, enveloped in white dust or coated in mud, pursue their course unheeding over broken and shell-tossed roads, familiar figures of the battlefield, more often than not compelled to wobble their motorcycles along the ditch when passing moving troops. End of Part 4, Chapter 3